Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Okay. <laughs> three people are wonderful. Same three people are raised their hands. I still haven't figured that out here, but, you know, I accept it. Um, it it's good to be uh, able to be here with you this morning. Uh, you know, I do a lot of traveling and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, this morning, uh, let me just get us set up here. You can see up there on the screen, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Uh, in a series entitled Be Strong in Grace, we're going to continue that. And this morning is part 61, which is uh, entitled Equipped for Every Good Work. We'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But before I go there, um, I need to ask a question. Is there somebody standing behind me? Is, is one of them a, a big guy? I have known that big guy to do that at other times, pull up behind other people and just scare them to death. But really, they're there because I asked them to be, and I'm already embarrassing them in spite of the fact that they're kind enough to come up. Last weekend, uh, some of us were in Toronto, Faith and I in particular, and Sean and Ashton were there as well at the church plant that we have going on up there. Uh, they're going to be ordaining deacons in the end of October, Lord willing, and and Sean and Ashton were kind enough to come up with Faith and me up there to, to teach them some things about leadership. Uh, this is the banner that they put up and posted on their website. And I've asked Sean and Ashton to just share a few things with you about what they experienced while they were up there and, and maybe a word of encouragement for you because of the impact that you're having in Toronto. Yeah, thank you, Jay. Um, so we can get to the message, I will cut it short because there was so much. <laughs> Uh, that went on last weekend, and um, I have, Ashton and I have the privilege of serving as deacons here, and uh, um, so as that church up there, Potter's House Toronto, uh, goes into, or steps into electing, selecting deacons out of their uh, congregation, uh, we went up there and, and, uh, and shared our experience uh, leading here as deacons, also uh, my experience leading um, in the uh, in the sporting world, uh, Jay, uh, his experience in leadership uh, from the mission field. So we were able to do this seminar, and then uh, uh, Jay, on Sunday, brought the book, uh, as he typically does. And, uh, um, yeah, I, guys, I was, I was so encouraged by what I saw there. Ashton and I have, uh, uh, we've been a part of church plants before, a church plant before. And, uh, guys, I, I was just encouraged at how well this one's going. Uh, they don't all go this way. Uh, Jeff and Gemma are awesome. They are rocks. I promise you the gospel is safe with them. Um, I was encouraged by the congregation. This was, this was the seminar. This was not the church service. There was as many people at the seminar, uh, men, women, and children, uh, sitting there for six hours as we did this, as there was on Sunday morning. Uh, not all of them are going to get ordained as deacons. Not all, the, not all of those are going to go on to be, um, uh, to be elders. But all of them were there uh, learning and, uh, and just getting poured into. And we went up there in order to be a, uh, an encouragement to them. Uh, turns out they were an encouragement to us. Um, Jay puts it like this. Uh, right now they're our daughter church. All right. And here's my challenge. All right. I don't ever want my child praying for me more than I'm praying for them. All right. If they're our daughter church, here's the challenge. Don't let them pray for us more than we're praying for them. And I promise you they're praying for us. They're praying for us hard. Uh, so this is, this, is a, this is a big challenge for us. If Potter's House of Toronto is not on your prayer list, uh, add them to that. And uh, um, let's be praying for them. As they, as they ordain deacons and then eventually elders, uh, as Jay puts it, then they will become our sister church and we'll line up like this and we'll, we'll look out that way and, uh, and, and send the gospel out. Uh, the two of us lined up side by side. And uh, we look forward to that day. And I appreciate uh, uh, you guys. They appreciate you guys more than you'll ever know. Um, just being willing to, to take them in, uh, being willing to, uh, to support them in their journey. And, uh, and guys, I, I promise you, it's, it's, it has been good. Uh, the gospel is, is growing in Toronto. So thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ashton. 
And I can tell you without any hesitation, these two rocked it up there. I mean, it was, for, it was just a privilege for me, an old man, to be able to lean into two young people and, and uh, just watch them shine there in that place on, on your behalf. Uh, they loved them up there on your behalf. And, and just like Sean said, uh, we came up on the short end of that stick because we got loved back a whole lot more. And so we're hoping that you can appreciate the love that, uh, that's, that's coming your way. And, and uh, what he said was really true. And I will tell you at some point a story about how Sean and I ended up sneaking up on some guy and scaring him to death. It's a, it's a very involved story. But it may have provided us with uh, some new evangelism techniques. And uh, we'll get into that. We'll get into that later. Uh, anyway, last week, Brian walked us through verses 12 and, and 13 of chapter 3 where he unpacked two very important truths for us. Firstly, those who desire to be godly, those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's, it's not an option. It's not something you sign up for. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And secondly, the evil imposters in our world will proceed from bad to worse. Those two things are a given. That's the way life goes down, especially within the context of the church. And last week, Brian talked about the importance of context. And we've been working through uh, not just 2 Timothy, not just the, the pastoral epistles, but we've been working through a context uh, uh, over the last few weeks that began way back in the middle of chapter 2. Back then, Paul insisted, he began this context by insisting on holding on to God's word and living it out even though he was being persecuted for doing that, being persecuted for that choice. And ultimately, as we've made our way through, we've discovered that there are two different kinds of people in this world. Those who have been reached with the gospel and those who have not yet been reached with the gospel. And there's a difference between reached and unreached and churched and unchurched. Uh, we talk about this from time to time just to make sure that we're all on the same page Churched and unchurched is describing a group of people who have access to the gospel. Uh, you can find the gospel on television in the United States at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's usually when it's on. It doesn't really find its way into prime time very often. But 3 o'clock in the morning, you can be surfing through channels and run across somebody who will share the gospel with you. And you get to make the choice whether or not you're going to listen to it. But it's there. It's available. And so around us here in our community, we have churched people, people who go to church. We have unchurched people, people who are not yet going to church. They're not here this morning. You could invite them, but they're, for right now, they're not here. That's different than reached and unreached. Reached and unreached is talking about access to the gospel. There are about 6,500 people groups on planet Earth today that couldn't hear the gospel if they tried to that couldn't hear the gospel if they wanted to. Because no one that knows them, no one that understands their culture, no one that speaks their language knows the gospel. It's going to take somebody coming from outside. So those two kinds of people, the reached and the unreached. And then among those that are reached, that breaks down into two groups again. Those that have believed the gospel and those that have not believed the gospel. And Paul has whittled it down even further for us when he says there are two kinds of people among those who have believed the gospel, those who have steadfastly held on to the gospel, to God's word, and those who are departing or have departed from the faith. By the beginning of chapter 3, Paul tells us that there will be terrible times in the last days. And we, uh, we haven't given a lot of definition to the last days, but there's good reason to believe that when, when the, the New Testament talks about the last days, it isn't speaking specifically about uh, how terrible things are going to be at the very end of time. He's talking about the fact that, that, uh, that from the time of the ascension, from the time Jesus went back to heaven and put the church in our hands, we have been living in the last days. The last days where there is an objective to take the gospel to every people group on the planet. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and now to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we are uttermost parts of the earthing it right now. That's what's going on. We are at that stage. But there are going to be terrible times. Those terrible times started when Paul was writing his letters to Timothy. 
the persecution, the difficulties that we're facing today, he faced sometimes in triplicate back then. The people will love themselves. When he described the terrible days, he said people will love themselves. They'll love their money. They'll love their pleasures. They'll love their comfort more than they love God. They will disobey their parents and be ungrateful. They will be unholy. They will oppose the gospel and try to prevent others from hearing it and understanding it and believing it. They'll talk about godliness, Paul said, but the godliness that they talk about lacks the power to change their lives or the lives of anyone that hears their message. And that, that's what forms the sum and substance, the heart and soul of false teaching. False teachers consistently prefer law to grace. Consistently. Last week, Brian helped us to understand that, that in these terrible times, there are still two kinds of people in the church. The believers who desire to be godly and the imposters who are deceived and in turn go on to deceive others. There'll be two different consequences we know for those two different groups. But those consequences are likely not what you think they would be or what you would expect them to be. We might think that if I choose to be a good person and live a godly life, then, then God's going to reach down and just wrap me up in his protection and keep me safe from all harm. I mean, doesn't that just make sense? God has somebody that he cherishes here in this church. Wouldn't it make sense that, that he just fill you with warm fuzzies all the time? There's other people, those imposters allow themselves to be deceived and then start deceiving other people in the church. They think, we, we tend to think that God is, is, is going to come down and smoke them so that they'll stop. But that isn't how it works either, is it? Faithful people who live godly lives don't get a better deal than other people. And now... In, in, at least in the here and now. And imposters who deceive other people don't get smoked in the here and now. It's not what you would expect. Instead, those who desire to be godly will be persecuted. And I can tell you I've seen this. I've experienced this. In, I've been in Russia where, where we're meeting with the underground church and there's this big push for registration. In many, many countries, there are underground Unregistered churches and registered churches, we refer to the unregistered churches as the underground churches because the government can't track them and doesn't know where they are. I've sat in conversations with people in Russia, believers in Russia, who are asking the question, the government wants us to register. They're requiring that we register, that we give them our names, that they, our addresses so that they know where we are. But in the past, in, in, in years past, They've used those lists, they've collected those lists, and then used those lists to crack down on the church and arrest those who follow Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to manage this? I've been in church in China where we couldn't even sing out loud. They played the music just ever so softly, and we all stood there and mouthed the words. We whispered our worship back to God because of the potential consequences of being discovered. They're living godly in Christ Jesus, and because of that, they are being persecuted. But it's here at the lake as well. You know how that happens. You were in line for that promotion. It was bound to happen. You were sure of it. It was a lock. And then you made the very grave error of sharing the good news with somebody who needed to hear it, one of your coworkers or your boss. And suddenly that opportunity vaporized. It was gone. That's persecution. Persecution doesn't happen in the same intensity everywhere we turn. It doesn't happen every minute or every hour of every day or all the time. And some face, people face greater, deeper persecution. Some people right now are walking through fires that we haven't smelled the smoke of. But that's what happens. Why is that happening to them? Why is that persecution happening to them? Because they desire to live godly lives. It's as simple as that. It's not punishment that's coming from God. Those that are going astray... 
Those that are deceiving others will go from bad to worse, and I've seen it in Russia and China as I've sat down with people who were rock solid, who were steady. Sometimes it's within the registered church itself. They begin to compromise and conform to the government's restrictions on such a level that, that they lose the gospel in the process. I've been in heartfelt, broken-hearted conversations with people, begging them to come back to the truth, because the truth is the only thing that we have. But it is very common that that is not the outcome. It goes from bad to worse. And in that bad to worse equation that Brian introduced us to last week, what is it that describes bad? What's bad and, and what's worse? Well, Brian taught us verse 13 last week. Being deceived is bad. But then picking up and deceiving other people is worse. That's how it progresses from bad to worse. I allow myself to be deceived. I get caught in this downward spiral. And I, before I know it, I'm deceiving other people. You know how it happens. You're, you're listening to the podcast. You're, you're, you're sitting in the, uh, you're, you know, you're watching this, this preacher on the, on the television on a Sunday morning. And there comes this moment when you say to yourself, well, well. Well, we don't mute the TV or put it on pause. You have that capacity. But, but something just sounded off, right? I wonder, why, I wonder why he said that. That just Because I've never heard that at Potter's. I've never heard that. That just sounded, but, well, you know, I'm, I'm committed here. And for a penny and for a pound, I'm just going to keep listening. And we keep listening. And the deception grows deeper and wider and deeper and wider. And before you know it, we are completely off track. And sadly, that goes from bad. That's bad. But it becomes worse because we become part of the people. We become one of the pe per persons who are out there deceiving other people. What should we have done? Listen, if it, <laughs> an old friend of mine, I think I've quoted this for you before, if it, if it waddles like a duck and it swims like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. I don't care if it does say it's a chicken. It's a duck, right? You got that sense there. Something just didn't smell right. You know what you should have done? You should have just paused it, opened your Bible, sought counsel if you needed it. But compared that, what that person just said to what God's Word says, and if you don't take that step, you've taken one step closer into that deception, one step deeper. So we all want to be aware of that. We must learn to avoid that downward spiral. And the only way to avoid the downward spiral is to not allow yourself to be deceived in the first place. Take a stand on what's true and what's right. So over the last several weeks, Paul has talked to us about being reached versus being unreached, about, about being churched versus being unchurched, about holding on to the truth versus departing from the truth, about constructing our faith versus deconstructing our faith. He's talked to us about wandering off versus staying the course. And he's talked to us about desiring to be godly and be, being persecuted versus being imposters who are deceived and are deceiving other people. That's a mouthful. But now, now that Paul has covered all that ground with Timothy and it's been some hard stuff to listen to, Paul is about to ask Timothy to pick a side. To make a choice. Paul wants to know which equation Timothy intends to use to sum up his life. Which side of the equation will sum up Timothy? And, and beyond that, how do we choose to define ourselves? Which equation are we going to use in the verses, verses that we've been looking at? Paul knew that he had made that decision for himself. And Paul also knew that he could not make that decision for Timothy. Timothy would have to decide for himself, just like you and I have to decide for ourselves. So here's the question. Is Timothy going to construct his faith and be persecuted or deconstruct his faith and go from bad, being deceived, to worse, deceiving other people? Well, that remains to be seen. But it's time to move on and, and read the passage that we're going to unpack this morning. So if you will stand with me. We'll read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 aloud. And uh, please join me if you're able. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you. You can take your seats, and as you take your seats, pray again. Whisper a prayer from your heart to his that he would teach you through his word this morning. This morning, I, uh, I want to tell you a story from God's word. Surprise, surprise, just like always. But um, I, I want to tell you a story that, that, that I believe ties what we learned last week to what we're, le- we're about to learn this week as we unpack this passage uh, from this morning. And that story has to do with three young men named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Though you may know them uh, better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And with that brief background, this is the story from God's Word from Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had grown up in Jerusalem but had been taken prisoner by the Babylonian Empire when the Babylonian Empire invaded Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonian Empire during that time, and he was not a follower of the one true God. He was, in fact, an idolater. He believed that idols were gods, smaller idols were gods, and he took that a step up by by commissioning the construction of a golden idol that was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in Babylon. He ordered all of the leaders, the satraps, all of the people that held minor positions and, and, and important positions, he ordered them all to come to the plain of Dura, because he wanted them to participate in, in dedicating this idol, this God that would, see, that would oversee them. And because of that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, since they were in leadership positions in the kingdom, were required to attend and participate. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to add really quickly here, were followers of the one true God. So this order, this order put them in grave danger as they approached They had no idea what was going to happen. They hadn't heard this story yet when they showed up there on the plain of Dura. They would have to do, they would have to respond as the king instructed them or suffer the consequences. The entire group of leaders from across Babylon found themselves standing before this massive, totally impressive golden idol. And the king then ordered that instructions be given that went like this. No, not like that. Soon the music will begin to play, the king said. He sent, he sent heralds throughout the crowd. Soon the music will begin to play. And when you hear the music start, you are required to instantly fall down and worship the golden idol that King Nebuchadnezzar has, sent, has set up right here on the plain of Dura. And then they added, and whoever does not fall down and worship the idol will immediately be thrown into a blazing fiery furnace. So the music began to play. And everyone, of course, fell down and worshipped the idol. Everyone, that is, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were left standing in that sea of people that were down on their faces. Naturally, word soon reached the king there on that, on that wide open area that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been disrespectful to him, had not cared about his gods or his order or even him, and, uh, and they had refused to kneel down. They had refused to fall on their faces when the order, when the music began. So the king sent for them, and he ordered them to, to stand there before him, right there where he was seated. And the king is furious already at this point. Is it true, he said, that you do not serve my gods or worship the idol that I have set up? And then without waiting for an answer, the king told them that he was willing to give them another chance. He informed them that he'd have the music played again. And if they chose to bow down this time and worship the, 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 the golden idol, then, then, then he would be willing to forget the whole thing, the whole ugly incident. But then he added, if they were not willing to bow down, they would be thrown immediately into a blazing, fiery furnace. The king's committed. With that threat still hanging in the air, the king asked them, once you have been thrown in that fiery furnace... 
What God will be able to save you from the heat or deliver you from my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spoke immediately and said, we do not have to defend our actions today because if we are thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace, then the God that we serve is able to deliver us from the flame and to save us from your hand. But please know, O king, that even if he does not, we will not bow down. King Nebuchadnezzar's fury boiled over at that point when they said that. And he ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. He then commanded some of the strongest men in his army to, to take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the fiery furnace. And so they, they, they threw them down onto the ground and they tied their hands behind their back and they tied their feet together. And then they carried them over to that furnace and getting, they got as close as they could, close enough to throw them in. And the fire was so intense, the heat was so intense that the men that carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over there died from the burns from the flames. The king, seeing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these challengers to, to his authority, were finally taken care of. He settled back into his seat. He breathed a sigh of relief. But it was momentary. Suddenly, he jumped to his feet. And he said to his closest advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into that fire? Certainly, your majesty, they said, O king, live forever. With a trembling voice, the king said, then why do I see four men walking around unharmed in the flames? And one of them, one of them looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar approached the mouth of the furnace and called out cautiously to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, he said, come out, come here to me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fiery furnace and made their way to the king. And as they passed between the people, the people noticed as they went through that the fire had not burned them, had not harmed their bodies. Not a hair on their head was singed. Their robes were not scorched. And listen, there wasn't even the smell of smoke about them. They finally stood before the king. And as they stood there, King Nebuchadnezzar praised the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel, he said, to care for those men, to protect them. And then King Nebuchadnezzar took note of the fact that these three young men were willing to lay down their lives. They were willing to die rather than worship or serve any God other than the one true God, the most high God. And that is the story. From God's word. There's two things I want us to see right out of the gate. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a deep desire to live godly lives. And those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And that's exactly what happened that day. They were only guilty of wanting to live a godly life. They were only guilty of wanting to worship and serve the one true God. The most high God. And because of that, they suffered consequences. This world doesn't like it when that happens. And King Nebuchadnezzar, on the other side, went from bad to worse. How did he go from bad to worse? Well, as he was growing up, somebody came along and, and showed him this idol and said, this idol is God. And King Nebuchadnezzar allowed himself to be deceived by that. And eventually, this little idol turns into this 90 by 9 monstrosity that King Nebuchadnezzar is not only saying is God, but he's also insisting that everybody else bow down to it. He had been deceived, and that's bad. But now he was deceiving others, and that's worse. And to King Nebuchadnezzar's credit, when he was confronted with the truth, <laughs> spectacularly confronted with the truth, I, I get it, but when he was confronted with the truth, he changed his mind. He repented. He understood that there was a God that stood, that towered above that 90-foot-tall golden idol, that statue that stood there on the plain of Dura. He changed his mind. But I can tell you that that's not usually how it goes when someone has allowed themselves to be deceived. Uh, for some reason, people that have been caught in that vortex 
are usually, they usually prefer deception to the truth. And no matter how, how passionately the truth is presented to them, no matter how clear it is in God's word, they continue to want to live with deception instead of truth. But I, I can tell you, i got a whole other question. Who the heck are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who are they? I mean, where did they come from? They show up out of nowhere, and they've got this really, uh, they, they make a decision, and, and, and we're still telling the story today, all these thousands of years later. Who were they? Well, I don't have we don't have time to go into the deep background for them, but, but they grew up during a time that was characterized by revival. Hezekiah was the king of Judah when they were just little boys. And, and Hezekiah had, had made a point to go and destroy all the high places, tear down all the idols. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have watched their mom and dad get involved in that with great enthusiasm. The greatest revival in Israel's history when the, the idols were all torn down. And now they find themselves standing on the plain of Dura and they know their lives are at stake, their lives are at risk. But as they stand there, the king says you were to bow down to this idol. And they instantly knew what to do. There's no committee meeting. There's no, hey, what do you th how do you think we should respond to this? There's none of that. Everybody went down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who may have been standing together or may not have been. They remained standing on their feet because they knew what that was. And they knew what that was because of the time that people had taken with them. Particularly, I believe, their dad and mom as they were growing up. And when they're taken into captivity, they don't leave that behind. And now remember, Timothy has a choice. He's faced with a choice this week. A Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of choice. He can, he can go along with the false teaching. He can, go, he can allow himself to be deceived and start deceiving other people. And he would escape persecution. But I so love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to say. And I know that story was ringing in Timothy's ears and in his heart. Our God can save us. He can deliver us from the fire and from your hand. But even if he does not, we will not bow down. Let the persecution come. Let the fire come. We are not going to turn our backs on what we've known our whole lives. Timothy can let go of what he knows, allow himself to be deceived. But if he does that, he'll ultimately go on to deceive others. So what should he choose? In answering that question, I want to show you this picture here of that guy right there. His name is Malcolm. He's, uh, he's actually a, a bucolot. I don't, I don't really remember Malcolm. I, I wish that I did. Uh, Steve tells me that I knew him or he knew me when he was a teenager. And uh, he tells quite a story about going for a ride with me on the back of my XL 500R tree climbing motorcycle uh, back in those days in, in Manila. So I, I, don't, you know, I don't know when we were together. I, didn't, I don't really know Malcolm, but, but Steve sent this picture just to say that Malcolm is now part of the board of directors of the BBCF, the Bucalot Bible Church's Fellowship. He's serving in that capacity. And it was a surprise to me because I don't know the guy, but I, I can tell you, I knew his dad. His dad was named Longilong. What a great name. I, I don't even know what a nickname would be for that, but Longilong was his nickname. And I remember stories of Longilong. I wasn't there the day that this happened, but, but, but Longilong's dad was a headhunter. He had taken a head in order to get a wife. And Long and Long actually came running into, yeah, I know some of you are looking at me because you have not corporate headhunters, okay? Uh, his dad had taken a head in order to get a, a wife. And Long and Long, everybody told this story about Long and Long later. As a young person, he was in his late teens, he's getting near to the time when he, he wants to get married. And, and he actually rushed into a, a, a prayer meeting one Wednesday, Thursday night. I don't know what night the prayer meeting was. He slid onto this log bench, and he said to the group, you guys got to pray for me, you do, because they're getting up a headhunt, and I really want to go. And I know that sounds bizarre. But just imagine what it would be like here in Missouri if, 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 I were to, if Brian and I were to start t teaching and proving from God's word that football is a sin. You shouldn't watch football. You shouldn't play football. You shouldn't. I, I think that would be a problem for some of you. 
And if you bought into that, I can imagine you sliding into a prayer meeting one night and saying, oh dang, the Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl tonight and I really want to watch. It was the most noble thing a man could do. He just wanted to go. It was part of what it meant to be a bucolote man. And now he's sitting there asking for prayer. I had the privilege of discipling Long Ilong, but it was Long Ilong who discipled Malcolm. Long Ilong had wanted to be like his father and, and take a head, but God had intervened in that process. God had used his word to, to teach and challenge Long Ilong's desire to do that. And now Long Ilong had passed that on to his son. And Long Ilong, by the way, was the, was the chairman of the board for BBCF, and now his son Malcolm. Now his son Malcolm has joined that same team long after Long, long Elong is gone, years later. And, this passage, and in this passage this morning, Timothy is faced with the same sort of decision. Is he going to continue in his faith and be persecuted? Or is he going to deconstruct his faith and go from bad, being deceived, to worse, deceiving others? So how would you counsel Timothy? I mean, he's got a way to get out of the persecution that's coming. How would you counsel him? Well, listen to what Paul says in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Paul had stayed the course and been persecuted. Now he's asking Timothy to do the very same thing. And so I want to ask this morning, Mom and Dad, what advice are you giving to your kids these days? Grandma and Grandpa, what advice are you giving to your grandkids as they, as they try to find their way through the, the difficulty, the darkness, the confusion that surrounds us everywhere? Are you encouraging them to stay the course? Are you encouraging them to hold on to the gospel? And if persecution comes, then persecution comes. But we will not be swayed. We will not be moved. To many people, Longy Long would be little more than an ignorant tribal man. Huh. I can promise you he was so much more than that. And I wonder, how does the legacy he left behind compare to the legacy we're leaving behind in the 21st century? What will you, will you, what will you teach your children to get them through the dark nights of the soul that we all face? What will you teach your grandchildren as, as they, to, to, that will help them to carry the truth through the confusion and unbelief that will only grow worse in the decades that follow. When you're gone, things will be worse than they are right now. How are you preparing your children? How are you preparing the people that you're discipling? Are you providing them with resources from God's Word that will help them stay the course after you're gone? I want to show you another picture. As you ponder those questions, I don't know how well you can see that, but uh, you're going to see that it says, uh, the chief storyteller's original audience that little girl that has that shocked expression on her face is my daughter Jennifer. And we're sitting late in the evening. She's trying not to have to go to bed. But I'm telling her a story from God's Word in that picture. It's a pretty tense story. Maybe the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't remember. I don't recall that exact story. But we did this night after night, after night with our kids. We sat down and we told stories from God's Word about people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Paul, and Timothy. People who made choices to do what was right. People whose names we still remember today because of the difference that they made in their world. And I want to ask again, what stories are you telling your kids? By the way, that's Bukalot Bible study there in the middle, and there's faith reading to the kids, and well, that's a horsey thing that we did every night to get the kids into bed. They got heavier and heavier, and I had to stop that part of it, but the rest of it we kept on. Are you making the gospel clear to your kids? Are you helping your grandkids to understand the truth from God's Word? They need that from you. They need that from you. God's Word is full of good stories. And your kids and grandkids are, are never too young for a good story. Trust me on this one. And they're never too young to hear the good news. They're never too young to hear and understand the gospel that saves us. 
They're never too young to believe in Jesus. I want to recommend to you that you start them out young. Look what Paul says when we add verse 15 to verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want to point out that, that Paul did not know Timothy when Timothy was in an infant or a toddler or a little boy or even a, a, an adolescent. Paul didn't meet Timothy until Timothy was a young man. And what does Paul say here? This guy that had spent so much time teaching them, he says that from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. From infancy, this has been part of a conversation that you've had with the rabbis, with, the, with your mom and dad. Who, uh, we Actually, we know his mother's name. We know his grandmother's name. His mo- grandmother was Lois. His mother was Eunice. Paul's talking about them when he says to Timothy, since infancy, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Hope you don't mind another couple of stories here. I, uh, I remember one day hiking with a Bukalot man. We were on outreach, and, and we were hiking four hours in one direction and teaching two hours there, and then hiking another four hours back to be home that evening so we could be with our families. And uh, every time we did that on, on a Sunday, it was, there were elders that were teaching in the church, and so we were going out together and... <coughs> excuse me, doing outreach together, and, and uh, as we were hiking along on this one particular morning, I'll, I'll never forget it, he, he kept asking, uh, do you want to stop and eat lunch? That was, that was just kind of the question of the day, do you want to stop and eat lunch? And I, I kept saying, no, no I, you know, I'm not. and then finally the moment came when I said, sure, you know, let's, let's stop and eat lunch, and as we sat down, we unwrapped the banana leaves that had the rice and the, and the egg in there, and we started, you know, peeling our egg and, and eating the rice. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, that, that thing on your arm, how does it know whether you're hungry or not? I said, what makes you think it knows when I'm hungry? He said, well, it's just that every time I asked you if you wanted to stop and eat lunch, you, you looked at it and, and then said, no, no, yep. <laughs> I, so I had to explain to him that that, uh, you know, Americans have the clocks, tribal people have the time. There's a big difference between us in that regard. Now we're sitting there eating lunch, and, you know, we're going back, and we're, we've still got this long hike out in front of us to get to where we're going to be teaching. And, and uh, he said, you know, I remember, I remember Del Schultz, Del and Sue Schultz, missionaries that had been there before us, and I remember that they did this, and, and I was at their house, and, and then, and, then I, and I remember Bob and Lee Gustafson, and I, and I remember Marvin Graham, Fuller and Tino Santos, and he had, he had something to tie to every single memory. I remember them, I remember them for this. And then he said the most dreadful words I had heard in my life up to that point. He said, do you know what, I, what I'll remember you for? Man, my stomach was in a knot. And I wasn't sure whether I actually wanted to hear. Was he going to talk about joking? Was he going to talk about... He said, I will always remember that you were the one that taught us God's word. You were the one that taught... My feet didn't touch the ground the rest of the day, all the way there and all the way, all the way back. But I want you to know that I taught the word of God because I believe in the power of the Word of God, the purity of the Word of God. I taught them the gospel. I taught them to share the gospel because I believe that was the only chance of seeing their lives transformed from being headhunters to being people who were hunting for the souls of men. I knew the Word of God had that much power, and that's why we taught the Word of God. And so we've got one more verse that we need to do, and I've got... By my watch, eight minutes to do it in, and so we'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. It's a verse that you shouldn't try, even attempt when you only have eight minutes. Uh, it's a verse that is so rich and so full of power, so full of little bitty pieces of power and great big pieces of power, that if I were to take it word by word and, and just try to explain it to you, well, we've got a pool party at 5.30, and you probably need to go back and get your bathing suits before we do that, and you wouldn't have time to do that if I actually do with this verse what probably should be done. 
But I want, to, I want you to see the power of this verse because it explains why I chose to teach God's word to those bucolot headhunters. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You saw that picture earlier of me telling that story to, to Jennifer. I want you to know that, that we, way back then, I don't know how we knew it, we intuited it, I guess, but we assumed that toddlers have more time than teenagers. Has that been true in your family? Toddlers have more time in t than teenagers, and toddlers, when it's later in the evening, they're willing to do whatever they have to do to not have to go to bed. And so we chose that time, let's talk about God's Word. Let's make that the last thing we think about in our day. And instead of going to bed, we can sit here, we can sing songs. We sang and, and we prayed and we started at the beginning of God's Word and told stories right from the very beginning of their learning capacity. As they started learning, we wanted God's Word to be the first thing they learned. We would sit still together and we would be quiet. <coughs> we would sing songs together. And uh, because of that, we were able to tell them the whole story of God several times before they became teenagers. And I can say without hesitation that our children, our children learned everything that they will ever need to know in life by the time they were toddlers. We sat and talked about God's word. Those simple truths, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is still sustaining them today. And then at the end of our time together, each evening we'd stand in a circle and we'd hold hands and we would sing a prayer to our Father in heaven. Give us ears to hear that still small voice. And give us lips forever willing to rejoice. May our eyes be lit with wisdom. May we know the path that's true. And we'll march with hearts courageous after you. And when sorrow dims the light along our way, Help us to see each time of darkness Through eyes of faith, a time for hope a time for courage, knowing you will lead us through. And we'll march with hearts courageous after you. We're marching on with hearts courageous. We'll follow anywhere you want us to. And should you lead us where the battle rages, Lord, we'll march with hearts courageous after you. And then it was time for hugs and kisses and bedtime, and I can say this, we didn't know it at the time, but God was, was creating a vortex in our family, and those words, we'll march with hearts courageous after you, were never so poignant as they were last Sunday, when up in, in Toronto at the end of the day, I opened up and watched the stream from here. And listen to Michaela share that story about that place where she's doing battle. She and Allison and, and a whole lot of other good people are doing battle on God's behalf for the hearts of some very broken little girls. God was creating a vortex back then. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for my grandkids. That's what I want for you. I want us to understand what Paul meant when he wrote to the church at Corinth and said, the love of Christ compels us because this is how we think. If one died for all, then all are dead. And since he died for all, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We're going to lunch with Claire today, my wife and I. And Claire's about to step out into the great unknown to take on a battle, to march with a, a courageous heart into something that she has not yet anticipated.
I want that for you. I want that for your families. I want you to be able to stand up with, and see God use you and your kids and your grandkids in places that you have not yet guessed. You've not yet estimated. You've not yet seen. Your kids need to get to know you better every single day. Would you agree with that? They also need to get to know their Heavenly Father better every single day. They need to know who He is. Church can't do that for you. We just can't. We don't have the time. You can do that for your kids and your grandkids. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. And for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, we, uh, we just want to say thank you for choosing us. God, I know that and I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. I know that my, my family are not the sharpest pencils in the box. I know that we don't represent the sharpest pencils. There are people that are brilliant. There are people that are wiser than we are, that are smarter than we are. That, and yet you've chosen us. God, I pray that you would create a vortex here in our church. We're serving you and living for you and living godly lives despite, of pers despite persecution where that is commonplace, where that is the norm. God, this community needs to be reached. They need to hear from us. They need to hear from you, but all they have is us. And so, God, let's work something out. But catch us up and help us to understand that since Jesus died for all of us, we should live for the one who died for us and rose again. Help us from infancy to know your word and be changed by it. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. You have any sense for the play? You know, you know what your job is and what we're about to do this week? I hope so. So having decided on a play, it's my job to say, ready? Go get him, Potter's house.